wonder if you've experienced the death of someone who was so close to you, who meant so much to you that that death shaped you. That death impact impacted the rest of your days. Yesterday, uh, April 13th, I celebrated or at least remembered once again the death of my own mum. It was 28 years yesterday since she died. She died when I was a kid, just turned eight years old. And for every year, that date has meant something to me. It was particularly poignant, I think, yesterday, Maundy Thursday, a dark day. But that death has shaped me, right? Obviously, that death, not just celebrated or at least remembered year on year, but throughout the year. Every day, that death impacts me. Every day, that death shapes me. And thanks be to God, it doesn't define me. My identity is rooted in Jesus and what he's done for me, but that nonetheless shapes me. And it has made me to be the man that I am today in some measure. And in the very same way, just as that single death has shaped me irrevocably throughout my life, there is a single death that has shaped the church collectively for 2,000 years. It is the death of Jesus, that death that we remember every Sunday as we gather as his people, but the death that we particularly focus on today, his death for us on the cross. And so what I'd like us to do is simply look at the words that Mark has recorded for us, the reading that Jimmy just read for us, to work through it a couple of verses at a time and just see what God wants to reveal to us this morning. We've been working through Mark's account of the passion of Jesus, Holy Week, from an introductory week a couple of weeks ago through to Palm Sunday last week and then last night into the upper room, into the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, now to the very cross of Christ on that mountain called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so he will take us on, God willing, come Sunday to the resurrection. John Mark was one of the early evangelists in the church. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Barnabas. He, he, we read about him in the book of Acts, going on missionary journeys. And this letter, or at least this gospel that he's written, is written with an evangelist heart. He's written it, we, we think, to the church in Rome, to those who didn't understand the Jewish context for Jesus' death. And so he writes it with an evangelist heart and he wants people who don't yet know Jesus to know who he is and what he's done for them. We understand from history that John Mark co-authored this with the Apostle Peter and so obviously Peter being the eyewitness able to inform John Mark of all of these events. And so Peter and Mark draw us in now to the narrative and I'm just going to read the first couple of verses from this passage, verse 25 and 26, and you can follow along with me. Please keep a Bible open so that you can check and see if these things are so. So Mark 15, 25 and 26. Mark tells us, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. 
the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And then there's nothing more. There's no more detail. There's no more content concerning one of the greatest events in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus. That's it. It was nine in the morning. They crucified him. That's all you get. Which is weird because in pop culture, there is a whole litany of ink that has been spilled describing the crucifixion of Jesus. There is more artwork than has ever been commissioned for any other purpose depicting Jesus' bloody crucifixion. The whole movies that have been produced depicting the crucifixion. The passion of the Christ comes to mind, right? An ongoing slogging depiction of crucifixion. There are historical books that go into great detail about what crucifixion meant. It was a very common method of execution. The Romans killed people in their thousands using this method. It was perfectly engineered. It was meticulously put together to draw out the pain and the humiliation. In fact, in their Latin language, the Romans had to come up with a new word to describe the pain and humiliation of death by crucifixion. They came up with excrucia. We say something is excruciating. But I doubt many of us have ever actually felt what it means to experience excrucia out of the cross. I once preached a message, a sermon, that was just a long, drawn-out description of death by resurrection into the nitty-gritty, gory details of why it was so effective. In fact, during that message, some people left in disgust. And yet, Mark says, at nine o'clock, they crucified him. And that's it. He doesn't go into the bloody and gory details of crucifixion because he knows that that isn't the point. We haven't gathered here this morning to remember what it was like for Jesus to die, the physical pain that he endured. That is not the point of his death. That's why the gospel writers are so silent on the historical detail. Even Luke, who has been called one of the greatest historians in human history, in his gospel doesn't go into the gory details. He was a physician, a doctor, someone who was interested in the physical body, and yet even he doesn't go into the detail. That's because they don't want us to be distracted by that. The point isn't that Jesus suffered bodily. He'll get to the point in just a minute. But first of all, he wants us to see the irony of this picture. So he says, at noon they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. The notice that they put above the cross that would let you know why it is this poor sucker was dying, a long drawn out death. The notice that would otherwise read, you know, he was a murderer or he stole some bread or, I don't know, I, I woke up grumpy this morning, right? That, that was the level of power that the Romans had. I ran out of coffee, so 
crucified some guys, right? That notice that they would put there to show everyone this is the justification for this gruesome death read the king of the Jews. And for Pilate, it was a justification for his reluctantly putting Jesus to death. He believed Jesus was a a political figure. And so he put a political message there. For the Jews, though they opposed this message and didn't want him to to write that, he wanted him to write, write, he, he said he was the king of the Jews, but clearly he's not. At least for them, they turned it into and span it into a bit of propaganda for their own cause. They used it as a, as a way to mock him, as we'll see in a little bit. But Mark wants us to know the irony. Pilate's using it to dismiss the situation. The Jews are using it to mock him. Mark wants us to know this is actually the truth. Jesus is the king. And the king, not only of the Jews, but of all people, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, is the one suffering death on the cross. It's an offense. It's an offense. If you have a discussion with a Muslim, as I have in the past, and you want to talk about the cross, you will see the offense on their face that you could suggest that God would suffer, that God would die, that God would go through the ignominy of a, of, a, of a Roman torturous crucifixion. And yet Mark says, no, that's the point. He is the king and he is suffering and dying. And those two things are not contradictory. He wants us to see the blindness of these men who are putting him to death. The blindness of the crowd that's baying for his blood. Verse 29 to 30. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. So they admit it. He did save others. He did save others. He did heal others. He did raise others from the dead. He did save others, but he can't save himself. They admit it. The man who did so much for the culture around him, who did so much for the broken and hurting and suffering people in their own community, it's him that they're putting to death willingly. They're so blind. They've just received a murderer in Barabbas in exchange for the man who spent his life saving others. But the thing that's really ticked them off, the thing that's really stuck in their craw is this. So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down now from the cross and save yourself. This was part of the case against Jesus. We heard it last night and Albert spoke from the text in Mark chapter 14. It says this, we got Mark 14. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another one not made with human hands. 
Yet even then their testimony did not agree. So so these were trumped up charges. They were false witnesses. They were people paid off to give false testimony. And yet, and yet they kind of had a point. John records it for us. John records it for us in John chapter 2, verse 15 and following. He says, So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Remember this one? Both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now this is what's ticked them off. Jesus said he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The temple for these guys is the most important piece of real estate in the universe. It's where they come to meet with God. It's where God himself resides behind that curtain in the inner sanctum, in the Holy of Holies. That's where God lives. And then Jesus comes along and says, destroy it and I will rebuild it. They don't get it. They don't get what he means. He was talking about his body. His body was the temple. No longer would the temple be the place where God dwelled on earth. It was now in Jesus' body that God dwelled on earth. That's why his body was a temple. That's why our bodies are called temples. Because the spirit himself dwells within us. So yeah, destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up again exactly what happened this morning we focus on the destruction on sunday we will focus gloriously on the rebuilding on the resurrection but for now this is enough to get them really worked up it's enough for them to see a dying suffering expiring man on a cross and still insult him still hurl curses at him They're remembering all the things that he said that so wound them up inside. And this murder, this false execution is the culmination of that anger. That righteous anger, so they think. But the point is, the whole point is... That Jesus could save himself, and yet he doesn't. He saved others. Why don't you come down now and save yourself? Well, he could. He could. In the blink of an eye, he could take himself down off that cross and then proceed to wipe out every one of his enemies. 10,000 angels wait for one signal from him to just waste the joint. The reason he doesn't was precisely so that 
he could save others. That's why he didn't save himself. Because this was God's appointed means for him to save us. So he stays on the cross. He stays on the cross until the end. He stays on the cross until the universe is so, so, so taut with tension as its creator faces his last day on the earth. So taut with tension that at verse 33, at noon, darkness comes over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is why Mark and the gospel writers don't major on the physical pain of the resurrection. It's because it pales into insignificance next to this pain. Next to this heart-wrenching pain. The Son of God eternally begotten of the Father, eternally in constant and perfect communion with the Father, now cries out, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of despair. It's a cry of fact, of theological significance. Jesus, the perfect Son, who has done no wrong, is now shouldering all of the wrong cumulatively done in human history from Eve and Adam's sin to the close of human history. From eternity to eternity, all of that brokenness, all of that offense now rests on Jesus and God's righteous judgment falls. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows why he's forsaken. It's the very same reason that all of us will be forsaken apart from faith in him. The wages for sin is death. And so he yells out with the words of Psalm 22. But what we need to know, although Mark only quotes the first line, he expects us to know the rest. I wonder if you do. Psalm 22, let me read a little bit for you. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet. It's a very important word. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be forsaken because of our sin. But he also knows that he will be vindicated in the resurrection. He will not be put to shame ultimately. He will not be buried in the ground and forgotten. He will rise to new life 
on Easter Sunday and be forever remembered as the ruling and reigning Son of God. This is not a cry of ultimate despair. This is a cry of hope and of trust in the midst of the most astonishing suffering. And though our own suffering could never even approach the suffering of Jesus as he takes on the sin of the world, it's a cry that we too can employ in our own suffering. When the baby dies or when we receive the terminal diagnosis or when the world just becomes too much for us to bear, we too can cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And follow it up with the next four verses. Verses that speak of our ultimate trust in God to deliver us. Because he delivered his own son. The drops of blood that Jesus sweat in the garden. The product of the most astonishing, overwhelming tension and anxiety. As he considers how he'll be cut off from the Father on account of our sin. That's what he's experiencing now. That's what he's experiencing as the world goes dark. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus is dead. And he leaves this world with a last cry. Mark doesn't tell us what it is, but John does. Remember John standing at the foot of the cross, taking in all that was happening, comforting Jesus' mother as he dies, John records what he said. Do you remember it? Three words. One loud cry. It is finished. It is finished. My life of ministry is finished. My sleepless night of suffering is finished. My life, my work, my ministry of atonement is finished. It is finished. Atonement. It's one of the few theological words we have that actually comes out of the English language and it literally just means at one moment. That what Jesus did for us on the cross was to make us at one with God. That once we were separated by a chasm that could never be bridged, but in his death, he brought us home. In his death, he paved the way for us to be adopted by God. Not just made a slave in his household, but brought in as members of his family. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are God's child because of at one And Jesus says, as he breathes his last, it is finished. It is done. It is made one. 
And with that, he dies. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You need a, a, a physical confirmation of what's going on? Look at the curtain. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 10 centimeters thick, braided together. Impenetrable, hung in the temple as a massive keep out sign. Keep out from God's presence, you are not welcome. Keep out from God's presence, here is death for anyone who has even the slightest sin on their record. If you go to the temple, you will not find a welcoming building, you will find a very closeted building. You will find many signs saying, keep out. If you're a woman, you'll have your place, but you can go no further. If you're a Gentile, you get your own little place, but you can go no further. If you're a Jew, you have your place, but you can go no further. Even if you are a priest, a rabbi, you'll have your place, but you can go no further. And the curtain Only the high priest and only once a year and only after rites and rituals and only once in their life could they enter behind that curtain. It was the Holy of Holies. Do not enter. Throughout the temple it said, your death is your responsibility. And when Jesus breathes his last and says, it is finished, the curtain is torn in two, from top to bottom. God did it. It was God saying, there now is no dividing wall of hostility between us. See that? We take it for granted. But for most of human history, humans couldn't just approach God Humans couldn't just pray to God. Humans couldn't just call God Father. No. Keep out. And yet when Jesus died, when Jesus' work of atonement was finished, the curtain was torn in two. If you remember nothing else from this morning, remember that image. The way is now open to you. The writer to to the Hebrews, if you want to read that book, he riffs for many, many verses on this very thing. He talks about the curtain that once divided us now being the way that was being made for us. That the, the curtain that was once made out of material is now made out of Jesus' flesh. And through his flesh, we enter into the throne room of grace. It is finished. The curtain is torn. Atonement has been made. And there's one man standing who sums it all up for us. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This pagan, 
this soldier. He's not overwhelmed by the scene. This is not his first rodeo, right? He has seen thousands destroyed in the same matter, manner. This is his job. He watches people die, and then he makes sure they're dead. And yet he stands before Jesus, just one in a thousand. He stands before Jesus and says, It's the Son of God. And so every one of us this morning are standing before the cross. In some sense this morning, we have witnessed Jesus died. You've heard it from the lips of the eyewitness. You've heard the words of Jesus, self-effacing. And you've seen the response of a man who had no business declaring who Jesus was. The question is, what do you make of it? That's the question. Is Jesus' death simply something that comes around once a year, accompanied by hot cross buns and fish? Is that what this is about? If it is, then I apologize for wasting your time this morning. But... If this for you is the very crux of human history, if this is the turning point of human history, if this truly is BC and AD, if this is the most important moment leading into the greatest moment of human history, then I want you to come to terms with what you've just witnessed. Can you stand with the centurion and find no words? But the truth, this is the Son of God. And if this is the Son of God, then everything changes. If this is hot cross buns and fish, then nothing changes. Nothing. But if this is the Son of God, dying in your place and for your sin to bring you into at-one-ment with God, if the curtain really was torn in two from top to bottom, something no human hand could do, but something that God did to demonstrate what had been achieved by Jesus on the cross, then everything changes now. In a minute, we are going to stand and sing praises to God. That's called worship comes from an old English word called worthship. And it simply means that when you worship something, you attribute stuff to them that is worthy of them. And so we're going to sing songs that show that Jesus is worthy to be praised. But for some of you, singing songs is not what God is calling you to do. For some of you, God is calling you not to stand up, but to fall on your knees. Some of you have been living all of your life up until this point, worshipping yourself as the Son of God. And the centurion has just revealed to you that that is not the case.
there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And he is the sacrifice for our sin. So during this time, I believe God wants some of you to come behind our little curtain Come into the corner back here. There'll be a few of us there. And we're just waiting eagerly to welcome you, to embrace you, to pray for you, to laugh with you, to receive Jesus with you. The beauty of the crucifixion of Jesus, the beauty of Good Friday, the reason that it's good is that Everyone is welcome. That Jesus' death is big enough to cover all sin. Yes, even that sin that comes to mind. And you're thinking, really? Was it big enough to cover that thing that I did? Yes. Yes, gloriously, yes. I tell you from personal experience, yes. And so welcome and come to Jesus.